Hello, I'm Adam Leventhal, and welcome to the Athletics Premier League Countdown podcast. I'm not, I'm not really Adam. With the return of the 2019-20 season only days away, we're releasing 20 podcasts on the Ornstein and Chapman feed, each one dedicated to a different Premier League team. That's two podcasts a day, every day, up until football returns. Hi, I'm Joe, uh, and here's Alex. We're from the TIFO podcast. Hello, yes we are. And uh, we are here chipping in today to help out Adam and the gang uh, by recording today's podcast with Sam Lee all about Manchester City. Adam and the team have already released uh, loads of shows. Everything that comes before M in the alphabet is already available. You can catch up with those on this podcast feed, uh, by, which, by which I mean the Ornstein and Chapman podcast feed. If you're listening on TIFO, you won't find them here. Uh, and also via the Athletic app. And if you're not already a subscriber, you can sign up right now and take advantage of our 30-day free trial by going to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to enjoy the best football writing anywhere. Added to which, Sam participates on Why Always Us, the Athletic's very own Manchester City podcast, uh, which has been recording all throughout the season and all throughout lockdown. So you can go and check there for more Manchester City-specific episodes. Okay, cool. Right, without further ado, uh, we leave you in the warm embrace and the cool hands of Sam Lee. So, Sam, you've been covering uh, Manchester City all season up until during the lockdown. How were they doing back in March before the football stopped? Oh, well, this is such an interesting question, and this is probably one of the most interesting aspects of the next few weeks. And it's, it's kind of split down two lines, and one is the Premier League and one is the Champions League, because, of course, they had that statement win in Madrid um, in the, the midweek at the end of February, and then they won, went and won the the capital, sorry, the, the Carabao Cup. But then the last game before lockdown was that defeated Old Trafford, which just doesn't happen under, you know, Guardiola's city, but not even Guardiola's city. You know, in the last 10 years, City have done really well at Old Trafford. So it, it was a shock, even though United are very capable of sitting back and hitting on the counter. City have always kind of had had enough. So it's it's very difficult to say how they're doing. But I think... The best way to put it is they're they're not themselves. Um, they obviously came up with that great win in Madrid, which shows that you know they've not completely fallen apart. But they are, I think it's fair to say, some way off their best level. Yeah, there's a weird inconsistency to the team, isn't there? Because they're capable of going to Madrid and, and doing something like that, and then not to discredit Manchester United too much, but then going to Old Trafford and, and doing what they did there. It's something that we're unfamiliar um, with seeing as of, of City of late. Uh, what do you think it's down to? Well, yeah, again, and like, like I say, it's not not to be too down on Man United, of course, because obviously you know they've started to play well recently themselves. But you think of the Tottenham game when they, when they lost against Tottenham at the start of February, that was a different type of defeat because City actually played really, really well, created a lot of chances, uh, missed them, and then kind of fell apart again. And as they did in the first Guardiola season, and, and, it, and it unraveled from there. But they did play really well, and if they put those chances away, obviously missed a penalty, they'd have been fine. But against United, you had the more concerning performance, which was it was just very kind of passive and slow. They didn't create an awful lot. I mean, the game feels like about six years ago now, so I might be, I might be missing a clear cut chance that they did create, but they really didn't create a lot. It wasn't a particularly high tempo game 
I don't think, well, you couldn't say they deserve to win by any measure. So, uh, yeah, I think that is a, a more concerning one. And that has been the problem in many of the games where they have dropped points this season. It's not like you could say they were unlucky. That has been the case in a few games, but mostly they just, they haven't looked themselves. I know I've repeated myself there, but in terms of, you know, the energy um, and their their approach and, and even cre- creating chances, it, it's just not quite been there. But like I say, with the season coming back now, the motivations might be different, and obviously that that Madrid game, even though it was in very you know kind of unique unique circumstances and a very big game, and the motivation would have been there, that that offers some hope for City fans going back into the season as as it as it stands. I don't know about you, Sam, but I have a tendency to enjoy um, imagining the most extreme scenario whenever something a little bit wrong happens. Um, and in Manchester City's case, I often wonder when I see them lose in a game or perform poorly in a game where the players look tired, they look ill-disciplined, they look like they don't care as much. Um, and obviously those are things I'm putting onto the team. But when I think I see that, I often wonder, well, Guardiola, what he uh, expects from his players is, is, is incredible. He's a very exacting coach and playing on, in, a, in a Guardiola team for a long period of time, it might be quite exhausting. Do you ever worry when you see a poor performance that the team might just be getting a little bit of Guardiola fatigue? It's funny, the way you framed the question, because I'm the complete opposite. Right. Um, and throughout this season, although I've, you know, admitted and kind of tried to explore in great detail City's problems in various areas, I've always, as I've said already today, you know, I've been at pains to point out that they've not completely fallen apart and it's not the end of the world. You know, yeah, they are, yeah. if possible, they are they are able to make a couple of changes and, and bounce back. Um, but at the same time, even going back a couple of years, I always thought, you know, when when the Guardiola era does come to an end, it may well fall apart quite a bit just because I think, well, this didn't happen at Bayern. Obviously, the players were, were like mentally and physically drained, but obviously they still had a, a good season. But I, I did always kind of think it probably will be the right time when when it does come to part ways. And it's interesting because I was speaking to Dominic Torrent, who was Guardiola's assistant um, at Bayern and, and City and obviously worked in the analysis team before that at Barcelona. And we were talking about, you know, burnout. And he said, look, if you get two things from working with Guardiola, and that is you will improve and you will win trophies. He goes, that almost always happens with every player he's worked with. Um, but it's not free. You need to be concentrated, you need to be focused. And it's very draining. But he said, it's not physically draining, but mentally, because that, approach to being 100% switched on all the time is very demanding. He said the only way you can avoid that is change two or three players every season. And if you look back last season, um, they signed Rodri and Cancelo, but Cancelo's not had much of an impact, but they did sign two. Before that, just the one when they wanted two or three. Last summer, they obviously wanted Harry Maguire, who they didn't get. So they've not been able to refresh at quite that same rate. And Torrent did say that if it gets to the stage where your message isn't getting across, which is kind of going back to your question, I don't think City are there yet, because as I've said, with that Spurs game, even though they lost, they were playing Guardiola football, they were doing what he wanted. They did it in Madrid. Um, But if that message does stop getting across, the only way you can do it is if you're incredibly lucky and the team trusts you to sign six or seven players or you've got to go as the manager yourself. 
And that's kind of what we've been looking at all season, really. I remember writing about that in November. You know, this team does need a bit of a shake-up if City want to keep Guardiola for as long as possible, which they do. Um, the extent to which they'll be able to do that, we don't know. But yeah, I don't think, like I said, I don't think it's all falling apart. I don't think they're all sick and tired of Guardiola. But definitely, as is completely normal for every club, they do need a couple of changes this summer just to refresh things a little. Okay, well, I want to come back to talk about uh, player uh, refreshing uh, towards the end of the podcast. I think we're going to talk about or, or ask you Sam about centre-back specifically. Um, but before we get there, presumably City, City's ambition uh, this season, I mean, they're going to finish second, right? But w- w- where's the ambition for in the rest of the competitions? Well, yeah, winning the Champions League. Um, it's very interesting. I did wonder if you were going to say that. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's it's obvious, but you, you couldn't not. <laughs> You couldn't not say. I mean, obviously they yeah. want to win the FA Cup as well, but the Champions League is the big one. There was a lot of concern, I think. You know, I kind of feared for them a little against Madrid. I know Madrid aren't quite what they were, but they were in a good position in, in February and, you know, City weren't. So to go and get that result there was was fantastic. I mean, how the second leg's going to pan out now, you know, the, the football is completely different. We don't know. But, you know, the Champions League is a is a realistic aim. And I always thought personally that Liverpool would be their big problem there. I was convinced Liverpool were going to win it again. But obviously they're out. So, you know, Atletico Madrid would be very tough for them. You know, they've City have had some problems breaking down deep defensive teams this season. And if Liverpool couldn't do it at their best, then it'll be a real problem for City. But yeah, the... The, the goal for the rest of the season is is the Champions League and going back to the arguments I've always made even you know before this pandemic was even a thing and people were saying look the league's gone they should prioritize the Champions League rest players in the Premier League and make sure they're ready for the Champions League Guardiola won't do that you know his way of making sure everybody's fit and ready for the Champions League is to play 100% if even if you've got Southampton at home in in the Premier League at the weekend you know you that that is Guardiola's way of doing it so they will they will go full out, even if Liverpool win the title in the next couple of games. They will go full out in the Premier League, um, which they believe gives them the best chance in the Champions League. And that's basically, that is the big motivating factor for City coming back into the season. Okay. And as they go about that, do we have any injury concerns at particular areas of weakness? And, and, and who are the team's most important players chasing that? Well, it's interesting because all of a sudden you go from this this situation in you know February, March, but even before that, obviously, when you go, well, they're not the same and some things have changed. But on a very basic level, they would have been helped a lot by having Laporte and they would have been helped a lot by having Leroy Sane. Um, they do have issues that they won't be able to fix by themselves. And it may mean that, you know, Laporte is just busier. He's got to, he's got to do more defending because he'll be more exposed because of the, the lack of pressure on the ball all over the field. But that's going to make a, a big difference. I don't think they've got any any two at this moment in time, I don't think they've got any big injuries to worry about. Everybody's back. And obviously Laporte went off injured against Real Madrid in that first leg, which was a big worry at the time because everyone was hoping he'd be fit for the run-in. Um, Sane wasn't fit, but he was aiming for the second leg. And now, you know, both both are back. Um, after long injury layoffs, I'm not really sure it's been tested in football, you know, because normally after long injury layoff, you work back through the season and you're given 20 minutes here, 20 minutes there nobody's really ever been given a three-month break. So it'll be interesting to see how City sports scientists have stayed on top of that. But having Laporte and Sane back, again, if we're talking in terms of reasons to be positive and all of this, you've got the Champions League result to cling to and the fact that you've got two of the best players in the league back available again. Right, I've got a question here about uh, key fixtures. Uh, Looking at the Premier League, there is, of course, a game against Liverpool to come where, theoretically, there could be something to play for, Sam. Well, yeah... uh... Seems like a while ago now, but I'm pretty sure... Well, yeah, obviously, 
There is a scenario in which Liverpool could win the title at City. I can't remember exactly, forgive me, after three months and a newborn um, of not knowing exactly what would have to happen for that. Uh, but obviously, before the lockdown and, and since, um, that is an opportunity for City, most likely, not to stage a comeback in the league, but to say, look, not only can we put up a big fight when we need to, but you know we can, we can beat you, Liverpool. We can um, come and hurt you and this is you know this is us this is what we can do and this is what we will do next season and I think that would be the opportunity for that and basically you know last season they played in January after City had a couple of rough results over Christmas and Liverpool were like yeah seven points ahead and that was a big opportunity for Liverpool but City came up with one of those big defiant performances and obviously went on to win the league from there so it is going to be one of those big defiant nights obviously last season there was the fans it was a fantastic atmosphere in the stadium this time around, they won't have that. Um, so they're going to have to find their own motivations from out elsewhere. You know, that that edge of the crowd isn't going to be there. And, you know, potentially they might not even play it at the Etihad. But as a spectacle, as, you know, because now football is stripped back to the players on the pitch now, you know, without the crowd, it is very different. It seems very different. But as a spectacle, we, I'm sure we'll still see a very good game because City will want to send a message. And obviously Liverpool will want to, keep up doing what they're doing and they, like I say they may even be able to win the title there if they win which City will be desperate to stop happening Yeah of course Well listen every game uh, or every remaining City game is going to be is going to be televised live so for listeners who haven't watched them that much this season or for people from around the world joining if, if their sports are cancelled as well who should they look out for and what should they look out for Sam? Oof. Uh, well we've already mentioned Laporte and Sane uh, I mean Sane is an interesting one you do a podcast in its own right about Sane, um, what he brings to the team, what he doesn't necessarily bring to the team, maybe in terms of, you know, consistency and defensive work rate and just being switched on for the 90 minutes, which somebody like Raheem Sterling does have, although he kind of hit a bit of a, a dip in form before the break in terms of his finishing. But Sane's a very interesting one, for sure. Um, but in terms of, you know, the just why you would want to watch City, you know, the old the old cliche of why you would want to pay money to watch a player, it's just always Kevin De Bruyne. De Bruyne was <laughs> the one consistently good performer in that team, or certainly the best consistently good performer, because Aguero was really good as well. But basically everybody else you could look at and say, I'm not really sure about that, I'm not really sure about that. Mares was good, but not to the same the same level as De Bruyne. And, you know, City have had all these different problems where they've not, not looked themselves. And the beauty about City and why they've got 100 points and 98 points in recent seasons is because all these great players are a superb functioning unit as a team and it's not necessarily been about any one individual, certainly in that 98-point season. Um, but this season, they've not had that kind of collective unit and it's just been, on a basic level, to bring a kind of pulling them through in a way, you know, with with sometimes with goals, but mainly with assists, you know, just finding the striker two or three yards out on his own. Only De Bruyne in the league can really do that. Probably only really Messi in the world who can kind of do it better than him. So yeah, if, you, if you're thinking, why bother watching Man City? And I know a lot of people who aren't City fans do think that because generally you think they're always going to win and you might not like them, so you don't want to bother. But one is they might not win. They might not necessarily win. But two, just watch Kevin De Bruyne because it's one of those where we've missed football for three months. We've missed Kevin De Bruyne for three months. We've had a glimpse at life without football 
let's just appreciate it while he's here. And De Bruyne is certainly one of those players you want to be appreciating while you can. No, absolutely. Do you know, with De Bruyne, I always remember on Monday Night Football, there was an episode where I think it was Gary Neville did a uh, comparative analysis of De Bruyne's deep crossing. Um, uh, and he put them up against footage of Beckham doing the same thing. And the similarities were Be- Beckham being a player I'd never really thought to compare De Bruyne to before. But actually, the similarities were, um, were, were crazy. Yes, um, and that's the thing with De Bruyne, he can do it all over the pitch. And I suppose now in our mind's eye, when you think about Beckham, you don't necessarily think of of deep crossing. You think of it more, you know, Gary Neville's pushed up towards, you know, the, I suppose, in line with the 18-yard box and Beckham's gone past him and he puts the ball in from that kind of area. But he obviously with a deep crossing, he can, you know, put the ball over the top of the defence or curl it around the back of them, that kind of thing. And De Bruyne is just ex- exactly the same, really. But yeah, his area as well. Obviously, the deep crossing is, that's the one you probably have in mind when you think of that incredible assist he did against Stoke yeah. at the start of the 2017-18 season. That was from a deep area. But this season, he's really nailed down that cross from around in line with the the corner of the 18-yard box. He can he can put it in from there. And if, if he gets the space to put it in and the striker makes the right run, you're basically cooked because there's nothing you can do about it by that point. The move's already started. Everything's already in place. And by the time it gets to that stage, there's, there's very little you can do. Yeah, it's such an asset. Hey, listen, one more thing before we go and talk about uh, long shots and uh, new defenders. Um, you say that obviously the aim is to win the Champions League. Now, do you predict that the team can do that? Well, or, I think after will, the Madrid game, I should say. Yeah, I think after the Madrid game, I got a lot more confidence in that. Um, I was, like I say, I was kind of nervous for City before that. I did think they they might struggle. And look, they've still got to get past Madrid. They've still got the second leg. And we talk about Sane and Laporte, but they'll have Hazard. And, you know, things are different for both teams. I think that's their main motivation as well. I think it's already been on the front of the Spanish papers that Zidane has challenged them to be up for that. Um, But I I think they can. I think they can. And now, like I said also, I thought Liverpool would be their biggest threat. Um, I think they can beat any teams left in the competition. Um, Barca aren't particularly strong. Atletico Madrid would be really difficult. But I think... They can do it. So yeah, the, the short answer is yes, they can win the Champions League and I'm more confident now than I ever had been at any point during the last 18 months, I think, that City can win the Champions League. Alex Tifo made a video about Manchester City recently examining their long shots. Will you just walk me through what your, your findings were there? Yeah, so there's there's been a fragility uh, around uh, long shots um, for Manchester City this season insofar as they've gone from last season conceding a really small proportion of the goals they concede from outside the area to this season conceding the most. What's quite interesting is that the other teams around them over the last couple of seasons, or I should say towards the top of that list, have been fairly consistent. So it's teams like Burnley who who sit off quite a lot, uh, have a low defensive line, and that obviously creates space around the top of the box. And so you would think that they would concede long shots. City have gone from being really good at that to being really poor at it um, because shots from outside the area have a low XG value. They're not the sort of goals that a team should, in inverted commas, concede. And so this is an interesting area of weakness. It's also worth pointing out that um, in terms of shots conceded, City actually have the greatest proportion of shots conceded that are on target. Um, I think these two things kind of dovetail together in that... What it indicates to me is that City are unable to pressure the ball um, properly, particularly in longer areas, but more generally. So whereas before, obviously, you had Fernandinho as a a central defensive midfielder, 
um, and you had centre-backs that were trying to push forwards and create a high defensive line. Fernandinho's uh, use as a central defender this season because of injury problems has really robbed City of the ability to, to pressure the ball in quite the same sort of way. And that's created a situation where the vulnerabilities around sometimes Edison's positioning, for example, or the gap between the defensive line and the midfield line is really exacerbated. Uh, so it's a thing that that has become an issue for them, I think, almost exclusively on a on a kind of personnel basis. Yeah, OK. I mean, Sam, you mentioned earlier Rodri being brought in last summer. Um, obviously, Fernandinho has had to play at uh, centre-back, has had to deputise because of uh, injuries to, to players like Laporte. Um, just what impact has, has that had on, on the season? And uh, what, are your, what, what do you make of Rodri so far, given what Alex is, is saying? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. I mean, that video... Is, is fantastic because, and what Alex is saying is fantastic because it really gets to the nub and it's the best way, I suppose, of explaining City's big issue this season. And that's been, as I mentioned earlier, I think, the, the pressure on the ball. Um, and now me and Tom Warville on The Athletic, we did a, a big look at, at, you know, what's happened to City's pressing and, and loads of different um, loads of different factors and loads of different ways that it's, it's been an issue. But again, we talk about mind's eye and I think if a lot of City fans would think about the pressing, it would be more high up. It would be more opposition team building out from the back and City not putting pressure on them and the ball gets worked through them too easily and then all of a sudden everybody's on the back foot. Um, but yeah, this is great because I think we mentioned it in our article as well, but this video really goes into detail on it. There's just no pressure on the ball all over the pitch. Um, and some of the examples you've given in in the video, it, just of City being unorganised and you know they're kind of floundering a bit. They've been counter-attacked, which again quite possibly might be because they haven't you know been able to sustain attacks or to counter press and they're floundering a bit and they will have got past Rodri at some stage and now to go back to your question the important context is back in the summer when they when he signed the, the city coaching staff were thinking well he's a great player here he can really bring our game on he's better on the ball or he could be better on the ball than Fernandinho he could help city in more ways than Fernandinho can, but what he needs to do is learn when to press, when not to, because if he gets it wrong, he can go. He can go to press, push up, and they'll play around him and there'll be a big hole behind him and they'll be in the defence. And now I think we've seen that much more than even the City coaches expected last summer. We've seen that basically, it feels like, this is an exaggeration, but it feels like two or three times a game we've seen that. Um, and now the the reason we did this pressing article was because I was actually going to do an article on Rodri, but I thought it would be unfair to focus on him without looking at the wider context of the problem. Because if players are already streaming through because they're just getting past Aguero and Sterling and Mares and Bernardo Silva and whoever, or David Silva, in fact, because they've been pressing with a 4-4-2 and he'd often been with the part of the two pressing. If they've been going through them, then Rodri's as much of a victim as everybody else. It's not necessarily his fault. But, I mean, we've looked into it a bit and there was a really good thread on Twitter that I was tagged in. Um, and that that highlighted, I can retweet this when the podcast goes up. And that highlighted the areas that Rodri's been pressing in. And Fernandinho, as you mentioned in the video, and in this, you know, he's, he's, everybody knows he's very good, but he presses at the right time. So, you know, obviously he's about 14 years older. 12 years older, so he knows. He's got much more experience. But he knows when to press, when to do it. But he does it in central areas. Rodri is, always seems to be out wide. Now, I'm not sure if this is a function of the fact that he's often played as a double pivot with Gundogan, but he only played as a double pivot with Gundogan because he needed more protection in the first place. So he's always pressing out wide, which is 
kind of suggests to me he's being pushed out into unfamiliar areas. He's been pushed all over the pitch. And if he's already got existing issues with knowing when to press and when not to and not being as good a tackler as Fernandinho, which is fair enough because he's a younger player and he's adapting to a new league, then, of course, teams are getting past him easier they're in at the defence. And again, in the video, it mentions the, the, the defence are dropping deep. They've got no pace whatsoever. Carl Walker, fine, is the only covering defender. Um, but that's had, you know, that's had implications, which I could go into as well. But I realise I'm rambling on a bit. But they've got no pace whatsoever. So it's completely understandable that that defence is dropping off. And again, in this article that me and Tom did, we've got quotes from the old assistant saying, you know, if you get caught high up the pitch with your fullbacks out of position and the number eight's you know, have got to try and make tackles. And again, in this article, we show that the, then City's number eight are not particularly good at making tackles this season. Um, you're going to get caught out. And with Rodri's getting bypassed for whatever reason, you're then getting in at the centre-backs. Now, we looked at last season when the centre-backs did get caught out, but often Laporte just went over and kept pace with them and made a tackle or made a block or whatever. But now they've got Fernandinho, who I think has done a good job, but bless him, he's just not fast. And if you play the ball in behind him, like we saw in the Leicester game in particular at the King Power, he's just not going to, he's got nothing he can do about that. Otamendi is not fast. And not Otamendi, unfortunately for him, he kind of loses his head when he's exposed and he's been exposed a hell of a lot. Eric Garcia is really good, but he's not fast. Fortunately, he hasn't been too exposed because he's only 19. You don't want to ruin the lad before he's even started. But they've got no pace in the defence whatsoever when Walker's not around, which is quite often. Um, yeah, Rodri is, for various different reasons, some his own kind of fault but you can understand them, and some not his fault. He's been easier to bypass than Fernandinho has been. And you've got all these other issues further up the pitch where the press just isn't there. So you've got all these kind of things that have kind of boiled down to this big kind of wordy, maybe hard to follow debate that I'm putting forward now. And that's why the video is so good, because it explains exactly how these issues are damaging City and why it's this season and not last. So yeah, it's a great video and it boils this big issue they've got down into a very basic but detailed explanation of how it's you know how it's so effective in the season. This is why they're so far off Liverpool, because of this pressure on the ball issues. And yeah, they're some of the some of the reasons for it. Yeah, I think that 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 article which I I read, I think was, came out about the same time as the video, didn't it? It was a really um, interesting example of how a wider problem that pops up across the whole pitch then results in a particular thing. And of course, you know, taking or re- conceding goals from long shots is is a, a symptom of this wider problem, but. With City's press, and I think this is one of the things that that Fernandinho is, was so good at, and we we looked at this a couple of years back, I think, is tactical fouling. So the ability to break up play in central areas if the press is bypassed in the first kind of line, Fernandinho had this real ability to occupy the centre and just kill attacks off, even if that meant conceding a free kick. And that allowed the defence to be able to push up because they were less likely to get caught with balls coming over. Guardiola has this obsession with kind of occupying these central areas, keeping them stuffed up and, and then attacking through the wide areas. And it, I suppose what's interesting to me is is to see how a team... I mean, you, you've talked before about, um, and, and I think rightly so, about De Bruyne being such a key guy for, for Manchester City. And of course... Part of the issue for him this season is that he's had to occupy more of a defensive role. Um, but it's it's just fascinating for me that a team can be so affected by one personnel change that it can literally offset so many good facets of how they play ordinarily 
starting from a high press, working the ball through the centre, tactical fouling, the the position of the defensive line. So I, I guess my question to Sam would be, do you think that they will persist with Rodri and hope that he will improve? Because Fernandinho is, like you say, A, he's slow, B, he's 34. By the time next season rolls around, you know, they're, they're, they must be having questions given what a massive impact this has had. Is Rodri going to work out in that position or do they need to bring in somebody like a Wilfred Ndidi, for example, to take that role over? No, I think I think they, they're going to stick with him. Well, I mean, they will stick with him. You know, they, he will be there next season. Um, and I think part of that is because everything that's happened to him this season, and if he's not had quite as impactful a season or as as good a season as we expected, is because of all these different reasons. So, yeah, obviously, you know, Fernandinho not being there, and we've mentioned the tactical filing quite a bit, and he is he does very I don't know how he gets away with it sometimes obviously in terms of yellow cards I honestly don't know how he does it but at the same time he's really good at just winning the ball back cleanly which he does very often more often than the tactical fouling so it is it is interesting that he's taken him out as had such a big impact but it's not just that obviously in the article in the in the video it makes it very clear that when he doesn't play that's the big issue but at the same time I don't think you can separate it because if he wasn't there and Rodri was but Laporte was in the defence so you're better off. Okay, Laporte would probably have to do more work, and there would probably be an issue that needs fixing there. But they wouldn't. They might not be conceding these goals. They wouldn't be. Def- they wouldn't be dropping so deep. He would hold the line up. Presumably, whoever he was defending next to would, you know, be more more reliable. You know, Otamendi might need a more steady presence there. But also, if you go back to Sane, you've got somebody unpredictable in the attack, and it, that makes it easier for City to to create these attacks, and it makes it difficult. More harder, more difficult for the opposition to to plan what to do because the opposition now they know Raheem Sterling's going to play on the left and they know he's going to come inside and they know that when City get the ball, you know this trademark goal which I've also written about in the past where they play a one-two basically get to the byline, square it across, tap in, done. They know that when City play that ball square, City rely on the defence pushing up. And as the, the defence are going away from the goal, City are going towards it, and all of a sudden, again, they're cooked. There's, there's nothing they can do by that point. City are in behind and it's done. They don't do that now. They can just prepare. And they know that when City play that square pass, they don't push up. They stay in, block the gaps. They block the gaps for Sterling to run into. And they can, you know, they have a much easier time defending against City. And City's attacks break down. And then you might get counter-attacks from there. But if you've got Sane, and they don't know whether to prepare for Sane, they don't know whether to prepare for Sterling, they, there's different things they can do. They can start, City can start Sterling, they can bring Sane on. It, it's that, all those things make such a huge difference. So to say that this is all because Fernandinho is not there, it's, it's not, it's, that's not the full picture. It's definitely had a, a part to play in it. But if they had Sane, if they had Laporte, they would still have issues, but they would be much better off. Um, Rodri would be much better off. So I think City will know that. They will know that, you know, it's not a fair first season to judge Rodri on. And as much as anything, it's difficult anyway. So they they knew he would need time to adapt. They knew he would need time to learn. It's his first season in, in a new league, in a very demanding team like City. And not just in a demanding team, but in a very demanding role. You're basically being held up against Fernandinho, who is basically a 9 out of 10 on the scale of what Guardiola needs a defensive midfielder to be. Maybe 10 out of 10 is Busquets. But maybe in terms of the Premier League, he is 10 out of 10 because he wins all the headers as well. Um, So yeah, they will stick with him because I think they realised that he always needed a period of adaptation and it's not been 
an ideal season for him anyway. You know, those weaknesses in his game that they hope to improve have been highlighted a lot more by issues that aren't, yeah, that are beyond his control. So yeah, of course, of course they'll stick with him because like I say, they see him as somebody who can build the play as well. And when you consider the year before they wanted Jorginho, that kind of gives you an idea. And also Frankie de Jong, it kind of gives you an idea of which way they want to go with that role. They want somebody who can be even more creative than Fernandinho, who's a better passer and better creator than people give him credit for. But they want somebody who can you know, carry the ball more. They want somebody who's even more creative with the passing and they want to teach them the defensive side of the game. So yeah, of course, they, they will stick with him for sure. Uh, can I ask you about and it's, Sorry, and, it, and it's potentially very exciting as well. Like if, if they do teach him that, if they do protect him better and he does improve the defensive side of the game and he keeps driving forward with the ball and, you know, playing the passes he's capable of, it is a very exciting uh, proposition. Mm. Um, can I ask you about uh, Sane as well? What's the, what's the latest there? I mean, I think everyone's been reading that Bayern is a likely destination. Yeah, more than likely, more than likely. Um, you know, it may well be at that stage now where you know it's all, it's all done bar the final agreement. You know, the, the the famous the famous done deal you get in football, which can still fall down at the last minute because I don't think anything's signed. So, so that but, scenario you just described then of the defense not knowing how to shape up if you've got Sterling and or Sane available, how, how do Man City um, replicate that when they lose Sane? Well, yeah, but the the good thing is they're going to have. Sane until the season finishes. They're going to have Sane f- until the, the Champions League finishes. And I think with football being as it is now, like City are planning for what they can do in the transfer market anyway. Um, and obviously there's this new reality and we've got the Court of Arbitration for Sport here in, which is going to have a big say on what they can do in the market, but obviously the pandemic itself. But as far as I know, City are still looking for five players at least this summer. I'm not sure if they'll get them all, but they want a left back, possibly two centre-backs, um, a left winger and a, and a striker. Two centre-backs? Um, well, they need it. They need it. They need two um, centre-backs? Of course. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I mean, um, but, do you, look what's happened without Laporte. If they lose if they lose Laporte again, it'd be a disaster. Um, I, I don't think in the financial reality they will be able to, to get to, but they will be very strong. You know, it, also, that bears in mind, you know, doubts about Stones. Um, maybe they'll give him another year, but if they can get money for Stones, which again is another huge if, we don't really know what's going to happen in the market. But yeah, doubts about Stones. I mean, huge doubts about Artemendi to the extent that he would have left last season because he wanted to, but in the end he couldn't go anywhere. Um, so if he can go again, they will move him on. And if they can get in, obviously it'll be a big adaptation period, two new centre-backs, but if they can get two in, I think they will do that. Wow. Um, but yeah, sorry, going back to Sane, obviously they're making these plans, but... I think the most important thing for City is they have they have still got him and he is a big weapon and we're talking about the Champions League. I think if they want to, you know, if they're playing Atletico Madrid, they're going to need Sane. You know, that even if it's for 20 minutes at the end, if, if they can't, for argument's sake, if they can't trust him to be focused and switched on, and maybe he will be, but if they can't fo- trust him to be focused and switched on for the whole game, which has often been the case with Sane, particularly in the, the, the last months of last season, then they can still use him as a wild card in the last 20 minutes of the game, he's he's still going to be very important. And there will be games in the Premier League, which most likely won't matter too much. As long as City gets through the first period of Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, and they're not looking like they're going to fall out of the top four. They can play Sane in those, quote-unquote, less important home games or even away games. And he's just a huge asset for them. So yeah, obviously, it's most likely that he's going to leave. But you know, there is actually a lot of football to be played now. And I think with the with the little hiatus we had, we appreciate that even more. And I think everybody at City is just going to be focusing on what he can bring to them 
in the immediate term and then they'll worry about how they're going to replace him afterwards but as far as i know they do actually want to replace him which another little avenue we could go down if they'd have sold him to Bayern last summer before he got injured which they were going to do they wouldn't have replaced him and can you imagine the problems the city have had this season can you imagine the stick they would get if they had these problems having decided not to replace Sane? They, they kind of dodged a bullet with that one, really. And especially now they're going to have him available. They, they really did get away with one there, which is an interesting little side story. Yeah, but yeah he's, he's available and he's going to be a big help. And finally, I know we haven't talked about anything off the pitch in this podcast, and um, you know, partly because we've done that quite a lot on this show before, um, and also because I think you know, as things hot up again, it'd be great to have you back, Sam, so that we can discuss this in more detail. Um, but in terms of um, decisions around FFP and the Court of Arbitration, what's the timeline now? What are we waiting for? And um, what what are you expecting? So basically, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the 8th, 9th and 10th of, of June, there is the three-day hearing, which is a long hearing by CAS standards generally. So that, that kind of highlights how complicated a case it's going to be. And there's been a few reports that the decision won't be published or made public until August, which isn't such a much problem anymore because if you would have said that, in the old football, in the old world, that would have been a big problem because the season would have started. You know, the Champions League season would have started in August. Um, you know, Sheffield United, if they were to finish fifth, they would want to know and all of this. But it doesn't matter so much now because the Champions League, if everything goes well, it looks like it's going to finish in Lisbon around August anyway. So if oh, you can imagine City winning the Champions League and then the next day, Cass saying, oh, by the way, you are banned for two years. But it looks like the decision is going to be out in August by by kind of reports elsewhere. Um, so we're not. I don't think we'll hear much. There'll be a lot of noise about it this week, but I don't think much is going to come out. There's been stories over the weekend that you know, even the location of the where the video calls are being made from, because it's being done via video link. Even those locations are being kept secret. Um, the three, the three judges on the panel, which is traditionally ones made up, you know, City nominate one, UEFA nominate one, and then there's a, a, an independent in the middle. But even the names of those three has been kept, you know, confidential because of. Just kind of how how big this is and how potentially, you know, I don't know, poisonous, maybe poisonous is the wrong word, but it's got kind of toxic, hasn't it? And I think they want everything to be top secret. So I don't think we're we're expecting to hear too much over the course of the trial. And a, probably a bit like when the ban was announced back in February, the bomb's going to be dropped at some point where either City have got away with it or they haven't and will, well, City have cleared their name or they haven't cleared their name. Um, so we're thinking that, that we you know that in August, I guess there, there'll be a decision, but the the release of that decision will be delayed, or the decision will take such a long time to come to that it won't will only well, be announced I, in August. I, again, I don't, I don't think that's fully clear. I think it, it will take a th- a potentially both. I think it will take a long time. You know, it might take them a month to to, to decide. I could I could be wrong on this, but I think it could take them a long time to decide. But then. It, it might be another few days or a couple of weeks before that's made public. But, you know, in that in the meantime, that will be that decision will be communicated to the clubs and then it'll be made public. That kind that kind of thing. So I, th- I think that's how, how how it would work. And what do you expect to happen? I really, really honestly don't know. I was <laughs> gonna say to kind of to cover my my ignorance in that respect there in terms of not knowing the you know, when it will be decided and when it'll be announced. We've put together on the Athletic a couple of really big articles and one of them is speaking to kind of legal experts and people who have knowledge of FFP and CAS hearings and all of this and um, you know what arguments City could make um, what arguments um, well how likely those arguments are to succeed so for example a lot of City fans are of the belief that you know this is 
based on hacked emails and they won't be admissible, but will they be admissible? And it seems like they will be. But then UEFA seemingly are saying that, you know, their investigation was never to do with the the Der Spiegel revelations. So it'll be interesting to see how they prove that. Also, UEFA, their own statutes say they can't investigate or reinvestigate any previous settlement and they can't reinvestigate anything that happened more than five years ago. But they have with City. They've reinvestigated the old statement from 2014 and they said the period was 2012 until 2016. And obviously, that's more than five years ago. So City could say, well, look, UEFA's own statutes mean they can't do this. But the people I've spoken to suggest that Cass will look at everything and say, well, they they may have good reason to have to have gone against their own statutes and it, that may not necessarily make a difference either. So there's we've done a lot on The Athletic about those arguments. But it will be interesting to see how UEFA prove that they decided to reinvestigate anyway, which was nothing to do with Dash Beagle. And the other thing, which nobody really knows, is City have said all along that they've got irrefutable evidence that they've not done anything wrong. So those two things would be really interesting to see. So even if we do get a decision in August... I don't think the other part of it is I don't think we'll get the full written reasons, as it were, you know, the full document of what was decided and why and what was presented and why. We won't get that for months. That might, it could be the start of next year before we get that. I mean, I know there are there are legal issues around this and what we're allowed to say and what we're not, but it, it strikes me that this sort of um, case is it falls under that sort of funny category of I mean. This is all alleged, obviously, in the the emails that were leaked in the in the De Spiegel leak and the football leaks um, are, are allegedly true, and the club might be able to claim that they are they're not real. Um, but <laughs> it seems that all of Man City's arguments against being punished here are technicalities based on sort of um, legal rules rather than trying to claim that they haven't done anything wrong. Is that not a fair way of looking at it? I think it is. Um, I've tried to avoid opinion giving my opinion on on this the whole way through while the investigation was going on. And even after even after it was announced that they'd been banned, because obviously that's the end of the, the investigation, but I always knew there would be cast and City's argument that is it wasn't impartial and all of this. So I've always kind of shied away from giving my opinion and tried to focus on the facts of it and what will happen according to you know people much more in the know than myself. But my one overall opinion on this is exactly as you say. If City do get the ban overturned, I think I personally, and I would like to think a lot of fans would as well. Obviously, I think the main thing for the fans is to get it overturned. But I would like to think a lot of the fans would like to have City clear their name, not just get the ban overturned, but clear their name. This irrefutable evidence they say they have, the best case scenario for City, in my opinion, and I think the only scenario for City which would stop the kind of reputational damage because if they get, if they were to to you know get away with it as it were, fans would always criticise them, and there would always kind of be this tainted reputation anyway. Even if City do get the ban overturned, the only way to avoid that, I think, is to say this is actually all of the proof. These are the emails. This is the full context. This has been corroborated. This is whatever else they say they've got. So yeah, I don't want personally City to get off, as you say, kind of on, on technicality, on saying, well, we did it six years ago, so you can't get us. Because I th- I don't think that's enough, because that's still an admission of guilt, really. That's still, that would still be, well, they did it, but you can't pin it on us. That, for me, that's not enough. I know for a lot of fans it would be. Um, and a lot of fans made that point to me when I wrote an article saying City need to actually clear their name. So yeah, that's what I want City to do. I want City, if they are to get the ban overturned, to do it because they haven't done anything, not just because 
they've got a good lawyer who can kind of argue a couple of loopholes. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, let's leave it there. But um, I think, you know, it's an unusual thing to say, but let's all spare a thought for people at UEFA today because uh, what an impossible position uh, those people have been put in. Let's assume for a second that the, the alleged e- email leaks were real and that uh, Keldin Amabarak really did say that he... Um, he would rather spend tens of millions of pounds suing UEFA forever than submitting to their will. What a horrible position to be in. Anyway, Sam, um, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really good. Sorry if I went on a bit, but with City, everything's always connected. So <laughs> no, it's you've, got good. To, you've got to cover everything. No, as I said to, uh, to someone last week, that's what podcasting is. So thanks very much for going on. Uh, we really much appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we look forward to hopefully having you back when um, when there's more to talk about on that last topic. There we go. That was it. That was the podcast. Hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks for joining us, Sam Lee. Uh, listeners, if you're not already subscribed to The Athletic, do make sure that you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to enjoy all of Sam's writing on Manchester City, plus much, much more. You can currently take advantage of a 30-day free trial. And uh, if you want to try it out before committing to a full subscription, you should do just that. Yeah, Keep an eye on uh, the Ornstein and Chapman podcast feed. Uh, and on the Athletic app to hear all of the 20 Premier League countdown podcasts, each one dedicated to a different Premier League team. And um, thanks for for listening. I suppose there's nothing left to do but for Alex to say goodbye. Goodbye. And for me to say uh, uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.